0: Well, it's good to see you. It's been a couple of weeks since we were together. And I know many of you have joined us and you've been in other grow groups throughout the year. And so you're you're coming into this Revelation study um, uh, a little long after it started. And so if you've not listened to the podcast, uh, which you can do, it's updated through last uh, two weeks ago, uh, then you may wonder, how are we approaching this? It may not make complete sense. um, And so I just encourage you, the podcast is helpful. Uh, if for no other reason than if you need something to put you to sleep at night, it could be helpful. You never know. Um, but I want to just think for a few moments about how I approach the Revelation and try to give you a synopsis of, of how I think things are happening and what we've looked at in the book so far. And then we'll dive into Revelation chapter 17, picking up in verse number seven. So a long time ago, we looked at chapter one, And chapter 1 gave us an image of Jesus, our Savior, who walks in the midst of the churches, who holds the power of the churches in his hand, who is the one who is and who was and who is to come. He is the one who was and who died and who has life again. And Jesus controls the story of human history because Jesus is the agent of creation we're reminded throughout this book of what we're reminded throughout the story of Scripture, and that is that we cannot divorce the message of redemption from the message of creation. The very reason that we can trust God for our eternal salvation is that the same God is the creator of heaven and earth. In chapters 2 and 3, we heard specific messages to the churches. Jesus talked to the seven churches of Asia. A reminder to us that the Revelation is not only a prophetic book and an apocalyptic book, but it's also an epistle, a letter. And there are seven letters to individual churches. But remember that each letter ended with this refrain, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These seven letters are specific to the churches of Asia, but they are for one another and they are for us as well. And they are a call to endurance and perseverance, a call to victory, a call to overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. We're encouraged in those letters to examine ourselves and to think about the ways that we fail Almighty God as individuals and as a group of believers and to refine our faith so that we might indeed be further conformed to the image of God's beloved Son, In chapters 4 and 5, we were given an image of God and of the Lamb. God clothed in glory and resilient splendor. His throne room is like a rainbow of emeralds, we're told. It is something dazzling and amazing. We cannot see the person of the Father because He is spirit and not embodied, but we see the splendor of His presence and we know that He is powerful beyond compare. In chapter 5 John was told that the ancient of days the one who sat on the throne he held in his right hand a, a scroll that had seven seals on it and they searched all of heaven looking for someone who could open the scroll and break its seals and tell the story of the end of human history and no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and he began to weep but he was told to weep no more for coming is the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah the one who is the root Of Jesse, the one who is this conquering king of David. And John beheld one who was standing as though a a lamb who had been slain. And all of heaven gave glory and praise and honor and majesty and dominion to God and to the lamb because he was able to open the scroll and to break its seals. And in chapter six, we were told what those seals contained. Uh, the first four seals were the story of ordinary human history. What goes on in a broken, fallen world? And in a broken, fallen world, we see the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's the first horse. Uh, we see the, uh, the turn down of the economic world as poverty and destruction uh, meet, as people are fa- forced to, to quibble over the inflated prices of wheat and oil and, and we see there there's warfare and bloodshed as nation wars against nation and as death wreaks havoc on the world. In the breaking of the fifth seal we saw how, how God is, is at work in the life of His people, His people who are His witnesses. There were souls beneath the altar of God crying out, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long until you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That phrase, on those who dwell on the earth, is a a placeholder, a stand-in. It's a way of talking about the unbelieving world. And the saints beneath the altar are saying, God, when are you going to plead our cause? When are you going to fight for us? And they were told to wait just a little longer till their number was complete. And they were clothed in white robes, a symbol of the righteousness of Christ that is theirs and ours by faith. And the sixth seal was opened and we were thrown to the end of human history. And we were given a glimpse of what the day of the wrath of the Lamb of God looks like. And the day of the wrath of the Lamb of God is horrible. It is fierce and powerful and mighty and destructive and bewildering. And all those who are unbelieving, those who dwell on the earth, go running for cover. But of course they can find none. And as they search for cover, they say, who can cover us? On the day of the wrath of the Lamb? Who can stand on this day? And the answer to who can stand on the day of the wrath of the Lamb comes in chapter 7. For John has a twofold vision there. The first part of that visionary experience is of the numbering of the tribes of Israel. But you remember that what John what John has in that visionary experience is not it 's not sight but sound. John hears the number of the of the tribes of Israel being sealed one hundred and forty four thousand, but what he sees is an unnumbered multitude of the nations, people from every tribe and tongue and language and people and so we talked about there how that twofold experience the the sound of twelve Tribes of 144,000 being sealed by the Spirit of God and the vision of, of an unnumbered multitude of the nations reminds us that the ones who can stand are those who are numbered among the unnumbered people of God. Throughout the Revelation, there are these images that we have of how God keeps and controls the lives of his people, and we see that they are sealed and we see that they're numbered and we see that they're measured and we see that they're washed and we see that they are written in his book. Over and over again, we have these beautiful images of how God keeps his people and holds them fast so that we know that those who really belong to Jesus persevere to the end and are preserved by God himself. In chapter 8 and chapter 9, we move forward and we saw the trumpet judgments. There are three sets of judgments in the Revelation. Uh, The seven seals, and then the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls. And the seven trumpet judgments in chapters 8 and 9 bring us further into the story of human history. In fact, I'd argue that that is bringing about the, the very end of days. We're coming into the final stretch as the trumpet judgments pour out judgment upon a third of the earth... And you remember that the first several trumpet judgments, the first four, in fact, they bring a a, a kind of destructive force upon the earth itself. But then in the fifth and sixth judgments, all of which are emblematic of the plagues that came upon the house of Egypt, in the fifth and sixth trumpets, we now begin to see how God is ramping up this destructive force on the earth and we find ourselves at the end of revelation chapter 9 seeing this destructive force on the people who dwell on the earth first in the fifth plague where they are where they are undone where they are undone by this horde of stinging locusts that causes them to experience just nerve-wracking pain and to cry out for relief and yet no relief can be had. And then as we see a great, great horde, 200 million strong of a demonic cavalry unit that comes riding in to bring destruction to a third of those who dwell on the earth, in the middle of that overwhelming destruction at the end of days, before the great day of the Lord, you would think that that would be enough to cause those who are wicked and unbelieving to turn their hearts to the Lord. But instead, Revelation 9, 20 to 21 tells us that they were unwilling to turn their hearts to the Lord because they would not give up the things they loved. They loved their passions. They loved their their indulgences. They loved the things of this earth more than they loved the things of God. And so they went on in the hardness of their hearts. In chapter 10, John sort of reset things. He was... He was given a little scroll, not the same scroll of human destiny and history in chapter 5, but a little scroll and he was told to eat it and this was a scene of a recommissioning. John was was told to take this scroll that it would be sweet in his mouth but bitter in his stomach. That's the way that the word of God is. It's it's sweet in our mouths to those who love the Lord, to those who are his people, to those who, who feast upon his riches. God's word is sweet to us but it's bitter to us as well because it is a word that convicts and corrects and judges and condemns those who are far from God. As John embraced this recommissioning to the work of prophetic ministry, he was given a vision of what would come at the end of days. In chapter 11, John was told to take out a measuring rod and to measure the temple and the altar and those who were worshiping there. And that was a way of, again, reminding us of how God controls the lives of His people and keeps them held fast in His hand. And then John was told not to measure the outside of the temple, that outer court, because it was given over to the Gentiles. It would be trampled for 1,260 days. This number of days is equivalent to three and a half years or a time, times, and half a time. All of those are symbols from the book of Daniel and the time in between the testaments. It's a reference back to the second century BC when Antiochus Epiphanes reigned for a season over the nation of Israel and subdued God's people with his wickedness and set up the abomination of desolation when they sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple of God. it's a reference back to that period that reign of terror in the life of the nation of Israel and it comes to be symbolic of a short but intense period of destruction that God's people will endure at the end of days and John was told that the holy city God's people would be they would be ravaged by the gentiles by the nations by those who dwell on the earth the unbelieving and yet they would continue to be His witnesses. And We saw there in Revelation 11 and verse 3 that there were two witnesses, and we saw that those two witnesses are two prophets, they are two lampstands, and they are two olive trees. We talked about there that that's a way of telling us these are probably not just two witnesses, not just two individuals, but instead they are symbolic. And my argument is that they are symbolic of the whole people of God, the church, the living witness of Christ, And these two witnesses, they are slain when they have finished their witnessing. That's what John says. When the witnesses finish their witnessing, Revelation 11 and verse 7, the beast rises from the abyss. Now that beast that rises from the abyss is the beast of the sea in chapter 13 and verse 1. He is the Antichrist that John talks about in the epistles. He is the man of lawlessness that Paul wrote about in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 3. The beast that rises from the abyss comes forth when the witnesses have finished their witnessing to make war on them and bring an end to their life. We talked about there that what that means is that God has commissioned His saints, His church, to be His witnesses in the world, and that as we draw close to the end of days, the time will come when the church has largely completed her mission. And when the church has largely completed her mission in the world, she will become the the target of the beast of the abyss. And there will be such destructive force waged upon the church. So many of those who are believers in the Lord Jesus will die on account of the word of the Lord and their testimony in Jesus that it will be said the witnesses have died and it will be seen worldwide. And Satan and those who are aligned with him will rejoice thinking that they have won. But of course, we know the promise that after three and a half days, they will be caught up to God. In other words, death will not have the last word for those who belong to Jesus. And we see at the end of Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 and 19, the blasting of the seventh trumpet. And the blasting of the seventh trumpet brings about a declaration. Once again, we are thrown to the end of human history. We are told what will happen at the end of days. And the announcement is this. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever. Before the end comes, John is given this word of assurance. And so are you and so am I that God will reign at the last day the kingdom of this world is the is the system that is under the devil's sway it is all of the oppression and all of the evil and all of the power that is waged against God and against God's people throughout the story of human history. The kingdom of this world is the the authority of Rome. It is the authority of ancient Babylon. It is the authority of Herod and Judea. The kingdom of this world is the authority of the Medes and the Persians. The kingdom of this world is the authority of of, of Osama bin Laden and of Hitler and of all those like them. It is every expression of evil that opposes God and God's people. And at the end of days, it will rear its head one final time, expressed in the Revelation as Babylon the Great, trying to bring down God and the Lamb and His people. But it will not win. In Revelation chapter 12, we are given some insight as to what happens. Why are we in the difficulty that we are in? We all know that we live in a world where, where the church is oppressed and persecuted and attacked. And in chapter 12, we, we have some insight as to why the church endures persecution. I'm really looking forward to Christmas this year because I'm going to preach through Revelation chapter 12 on Sunday mornings as, as our Advent uh, sermon series. So We'll come back to this more, but for just the moment I want you to think about Revelation 12 and understand this, that first of all what we see in that chapter is we see the fact that there's a, a woman, the woman is symbolic of the believing community, those who were anticipating the coming of Messiah. And that woman is attacked by the, red, the great red dragon who is Satan himself. She's attacked because the Satan wants to destroy the Messiah before he comes. But we see that she is not destroyed and the child is not destroyed. In fact, as the dragon is waiting to destroy this child as it comes into the world, uh, the spiritual reality to what we see in the, in the waging of war on the children of Bethlehem by Herod, what we see is that God, God delivers that child up and causes him to come up and to be exalted in his in his power and in his glory this child that people have been waiting on for centuries he is going he goes through crucifixion and resurrection and ascension and he is brought to the right hand of the father and in the middle of chapter 12 we see that, that that causes the dragon to be to be cast out to be exiled from heaven because the son is exalted the accuser is silenced John tells us that there was a war that happened in heaven and Michael, the archangel, wages war on the dragon and his angels and the dragon is cast out of heaven because he is an accuser, he's an adversary. He is the one who has been telling God, you haven't dealt with sin, you haven't dealt with sinners, you need to bring about real justice and you're not doing it. But God has dealt with sin and He has dealt with sinners and He has brought about real justice through His child, the Messiah, the Son. Son of the living God, our Savior Jesus Christ. And when Jesus conquers hell and death and the grave by his crucifixion and resurrection and when he is ascended to the right hand of God, the Father, the Almighty, to live and come again, there is no longer a place for the accuser in heaven's court. And he is cast out. And so why is the church at war? Well, because for a season the dragon has been cast down to earth to make war on the woman and upon her children, on the church as a whole and on the church as individuals. But remember that God evacuates the woman to the desert, a place not just of trial but also a place of provision and of power. And God protects his people. Remember there that we're told the dragon, he wanted to drown the woman but God opens up the earth and takes the water in so that she is not drowned, but is saved. We live in this era when the dragon, Satan himself, is a numbered being. He's a defeated foe. He is he is working out the last ounces of his strength. And as he does, he is making war on God and the people of God, knowing that one day he will be defeated. And chapter 13 and Chapter 14 continued to give us these words of assurance and to bring us forward in the story of what's going on in the world spiritually. And so in chapter 13, uh, we saw the introduction of the beast of the sea, who is the beast of the abyss, who is the Antichrist, who is the man of lawlessness. And we also were introduced to the beast of the earth, who is also in chapter 16 told us, uh, we're told that he is the false prophet. And in chapter 14, we're given the the numbering again of the 144,000 and the reminder here that they're held fast by God and we're told about what will come at the end of days when God finally puts his sickle to the earth and causes those who are wicked to be trodden beneath his feet, crushed forevermore. In chapter 15, John tells us it's time. It's time to come to the end of days. It's time to look to the final story of what God is going to do in creation. The seventh trumpet has been sounded. It brings about the fullness of God's wrath. And the seven bowls of God's full and undiluted wrath are poured out. And that's what chapter 16 is all about. And as the undiluted wrath of God is poured out in the final period of human history, what we could call the Great Tribulation we see that those who dwell on the earth are forced to endure the wrath of the Lamb And as they endure the wrath of the Lamb, it should turn their hearts. It should cause them to believe. It should make them realize the depth of their despair and of their sinfulness so that they call upon the name of the Lord and find grace in His eyes. But instead, so blinded and so wicked and so hardened by their sin, they know that all of this judgment and wrath is poured out by God. But rather than calling upon him for salvation, they instead curse his name. And chapter 16 ends by the outpouring of the seventh bowl, which is the fullness of God's wrath. And chapters 17 and 18 then expand that final outpouring of God's wrath as the kingdom of this world, Babylon the Great, falls. And with it, so do the people of earth. How's that for a summary? Let's look at chapter 17. In chapter 17, we're going to pick up in verse 7. John writes, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit And go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast, because it was, and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, He must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, "'The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages.' And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. In chapter 17, verses 1 to 6, John described Babylon the Great as the great prostitute sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, arrayed in purple and scarlet, drunk with the blood of the saints, the martyrs of Jesus. It is important to remember that John is not speaking literally. He is writing about a reality, a literal thing, Namely, that final worldwide system of evil opposition to God and to the Lamb. A system that is bent on the glorification of the dragon, Satan himself, through obedience to the beast, the Antichrist. This very real system is described figuratively, however. It is like a prostitute beguiling, enticing the nations to stumble into the idolatry she undergirds. It is also like the ancient city of Babylon opposing and oppressing God's people, though only for a time, for God will make an end of her. But as the final manifestation of the kingdom of this world, it is so much more than a prostitute or a city. John wrote that when he saw her, he marveled greatly. That he marveled or was amazed at her does not mean that John was overcome with desire, but with disgust. The great prostitute, drunk with the blood of the saints, is a grotesque figure unlike anything the world has ever seen. There's nothing beautiful about her in the eyes of those who see clearly. But not everyone sees clearly. The angel invites John to settle his sense of amazement by seeing the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The description is largely focused on the beast with the description of the woman's fall into fall to follow in chapter 18. The angel begins by reminding John that the beast is playing the role of the son in the false, unholy trinity, writing, "...the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction." You remember that we've seen over and again how there is a false trinity at work at the end of days, The head of that false trinity is the dragon, Satan himself. And the second person of that false trinity is the beast from the abyss or the sea, the one who is Antichrist and the man of lawlessness. And the third person of that unholy false trinity is the false prophet, the beast from the earth. In chapter 1 in verse 18, the Lord Jesus told John, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And in his address to the church at Smyrna in chapter 2 and verse 8, Jesus identified himself as the one who died and came to life. Jesus is the one who died and overcame death by his resurrection. The beast, ever and only a paltry, poisonous parody of the sun, is presented in chapter 13 and verse 3 as having a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. This apparent ability to overcome death is recalled as John is told here in chapter 17 that the beast was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. We were first introduced to the bottomless pit in chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. For it was out of this pit that came the horde of demonic locusts that were released to inflict great pain on a third of the earth. And in chapter 11, verse 7, John was told that when the witnesses have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. That beast from the abyss was described in 13.1 as the beast of the sea. And of course, as we've noted, he is the man of lawlessness and the final expression of Antichrist. We understand that the church, the witnesses of chapter 11 and verse 3, will fulfill her mission at the end of human history, but before the final coming of the Lord Jesus, and that when her work is done, God will allow the beast of the abyss to appear on the scene to make war on the church, leading to her large-scale destruction and drawing to himself the worship of the unbelieving world. These things will take place during what is sometimes called the Great Tribulation, the final era of human history, when God will pour out in increasing measure judgment, first on the third of the earth with the trumpet judgments, and then on the whole earth with the bowl judgments, all in an effort to turn the hearts of the wicked to the right. But because the wicked are unwilling to give up their idolatry, they will only recognize God as the source of their judgment and curse His name, hardening themselves in their sin. When the last of these judgments are poured out, the Lord Jesus Christ will appear, raising all of his saints, both those who are dead and those who are alive at his return, to new life and will descend to the earth, engaging the beast of the abyss and the false prophet and the dragon and the kings of the earth aligned with them in the battle of Armageddon just before his millennial reign. That battle was first announced in chapter 16, verses 12 to 16, but it will actually occur in chapter 19, verses 19 to 20. So when the angel says that the beast is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction, it's a reference to the end time appearing of the beast in which he draws to himself and to the dragon the worship of those who dwell on the earth while making war on the saints. Thus he will rise to make war, but he will go down to destruction because Jesus will ultimately win. In chapter 13 and verse 8, John told us that the beast of the sea will be worshipped by all those who dwell on the earth, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now in chapter 17 and verse 8, John is told how this worship will come about. Those who dwell on the earth, the unbelievers, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come In other words, the unbelievers will not have the capacity to distinguish the truth from the lie. They won't be able to understand the authentic from the fake. And so without the security that comes from faith in the Lamb of God, they will be taken in by the beast's trickery and will worship him and the dragon he serves, delighted to make their livelihood from Babylon the Great until it proves their doom." One of the things that we've talked about over and again in this study is that those who are unbelieving will not have to be convinced to follow the beast. Uh, There won't be an act of compulsion. It will not be put upon them by force. They will do so willingly, joyfully, happily. They will go after the beast and they will take up their citizenship in Babylon the Great excited and jubilant. And it will be because they have always resided in the kingdom of this world. We must remember, brothers and sisters, that those of us who are in Jesus Christ have experienced a great transaction. We have been liberated and freed. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Colossians that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, That means that we once were a part of the kingdom of this world. We once would have been citizens of Babylon the Great. We did follow the dragon, but by faith we have been transformed, changed, delivered, set free, and we have a new home. We must understand that, because if we don't, then we deceive ourselves into thinking, that somehow mankind lives in a great spiritually neutral territory as though we are in a no man's land in between two opposing forces yet to determine where we will live. And that is just not the case. Not for us and not for the world. The angel signals to John that there is something difficult to understand about this beast and he expresses the need for a mind of wisdom. The sort of wisdom needed, of course, is the wisdom that comes from God, and not this world. It's neither the study of history nor the knowledge of the newspaper that we need to understand these things, but instead we need the illuminating presence of the Holy Spirit, the one who guides us into all truth. The description of the beast is built upon the vision of Daniel chapter 7. First, the angel says that the seven heads on this beast are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Grant Osborne says that these mountains are a phrase that's often used for Rome in the ancient world because it was built on seven hills, Aventine, Callion, Capitoline, Equiline, Palatine, Quirinal, and Viminal. Those are the seven hills of ancient Rome. During the reign of Domitian, the emperor, we believe, who was at the time of John's writing, there was a great festival to celebrate these seven hills, the festival of Septimonium. In addition to being seven mountains, John is also told that the seven heads are seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other is not yet to come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not... It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Well, we could spend three or four hours here talking about these things. These three verses, verses 9, 10, and 11, are probably the most difficult in the entire book to interpret. Great effort has been made by theologians to identify the seven kings as seven emperors of Rome or even as seven kingdoms or empires that have ruled in world history. But all the efforts, if you read all the theologians, and I've read a great many of them over the last weeks, all of the efforts to identify who these seven kings are requires selection and careful omission of certain emperors or empires in order to get the progression described in these verses. Selection and omission that are arbitrary, and not at all necessitated by the words of the text. So it makes it difficult for us to understand. Of all the things I've read, I think Grant Osborne identifies a compelling argument. He says that many believe that the numbers, five, one, and one, and one who is yet to come, an eighth, the numbers should not be connected to actual kings or empires, but are apocalyptic symbols, with the seven, meaning the world kingdoms, are complete. This would be in keeping, Osborne writes, with the use of sevens throughout the book. We've seen over and again how seven is a number of wholeness or completion, especially the seven heads of the beast, as well as with extra-biblical works, other apocalyptic writings from the time that use numbers symbolically for world empires. Osborne says this is probably the best of the options since it fits the type of symbolism used in the book. But he would add this to it, that it is both symbolic and historic. That is to say that the five plus one plus one, the five who have been, the one is, and the one that is to come soon, does refer to Roman emperors, and both John and his readers presuppose that the reigning emperor was Domitian, we know that not on the basis of this passage, but on the basis of the whole book. How was, how, when do we believe this was written? The numbering was not a reference to specific emperors, however, but a symbolic reference to the belief that the Roman tyranny was a temporary phenomenon about to be completed in the seventh short-lived ruler and would lead to the eschaton, the last day. So the beast is the eighth emperor, who at the time of the writing has not yet appeared. This Antichrist is of the seven in the sense that he will follow their opposition to God and persecution of his people. He will not be another Roman emperor, but will have the same sort of rule, namely the same evil function as they. The angel tells John that the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. When in chapter 16, verses 12 to 16, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and it was dried up, John saw the false trinity send forth demonic spirits. Remember, they looked like frogs. Send forth demonic spirits to go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. The ten horns that are ten kings described in chapter 17 and verse 12 should be understood as equivalent to and a greater description of those kings of the whole world assembled in the outpouring of the sixth bowl. The horns designate strength and rule and they stand for political force and strength to subjugate other nations. Osborne writes that these kings have not yet received their kingdom And that connects them to the kings of the east, the image of rulers of the Parthian tribes who have come to invade Rome. These kings are to appear at the end of the final period and bolster the forces of the beast. First century readers would have understood that their former enemies, the kings from the east, now join with the patron kings of the emperor, the beast. And in keeping with Roman practice, they will be given authority by the beast as he was given his power and his throne and great authority by the dragon in chapter 13 and verse 2. But in this case, as in chapter 13 and verse 5, the actual source of that authority is God, not the beast or the dragon George Alden Ladd writes, It's very possible that the number 10 is meant to be symbolic, designating the fullness of Antichrist's power, and is not intended to be taken literally. The 10 kings are purely eschatological figures representing the totality of the powers of all nations on the earth, which are to be made subservient to Antichrist. So let's stop right there. Here's what, what I think is going to happen when the bold judgments have been poured out at the very end of the Great Tribulation, the final days of human history, there will be largely an unbelieving world and very few Christian people on the earth because most Christian people will have been slain on account of the word of God and their testimony for Jesus. Those bold judgments will be meant to turn the hearts of the wicked, but they will not have that effect. They will harden the hearts of the wicked who will curse God. And so the last bold judgment will usher in the great day of God the Almighty, and the world will be destructive. If you read back in chapter 16 of the seventh bold judgment, you see how the world is breaking apart. We'll see that again described in chapter 18. And what will happen is that Jesus will come again And he will first catch up into the air. That's 1 Thessalonians 4. He will catch up into the air all those who are in Christ. A resurrection, the first resurrection that is unto life. Those who've died in the Lord will be raised, and those who are living in the Lord at that time will be caught up together, and they will all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. And then he will descend to the earth with his army, with his people, to wage war on the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, and the kings of the earth that have aligned with them. And that battle is what's described in Revelation 19 verses 19 to 20 as the battle of Armageddon. And the conclusion of that battle, which is over almost as soon as it begins, the conclusion of that battle, will see that the dragon, Satan himself, is bound and thrown into the abyss where he is held for a thousand years. The beast of the sea or the abyss, Antichrist, along with the false prophet will be thrown into the lake of fire and all of the kings of the earth and all of their armies that have marched against God and the Lamb will be slain and will await in death the second resurrection, the one that leads to eternal destruction And then we'll usher in the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus that will demonstrate in the midst of history what peace and power look like when they are controlled by God and the Lamb. And at the end of the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, the Satan dragon will be released from the abyss and he will be slain in one last battle, thrown into the lake of fire, along with hell and death, along with all those who are raised in the second resurrection that leads to eternal destruction, after which God will reign with his people in a new heaven and a new earth that are joined together. And what is being described in Revelation 17 and verse 12 is that the beast is making preparation For the battle of Armageddon, he is calling to himself the ten kings, the kings of the east, that will gather together with him to wage war on God and on God's people. These kings will use their short-lived authority to engage with the beast in his warring purposes. Whatever personal agendas and national achievements they previously had in mind will then be set aside, for they will be united a united front in doing the bidding of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. That is what the angel means when he tells John that these are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Shriner writes that the rulers of this world, predisposed to exercise their own power and infamous for their stubbornness and pride, find themselves coming together. They are harmonious in giving their power and authority to the beast. The church should not fear, Shriner writes, when nation-states conspire together against the people of God, for this is exactly what has been forecast. The ten kings, united with the beast, will make war on the Lamb, In chapter 11 and verse 7, John was told that after the witnesses finished their witnessing, the beast would rise from the bottomless pit and make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Indeed, that was the pattern set forth in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 21. Encouraged by their widespread, though temporary, victory over the saints of God, the beast, with the kings of the earth, will set his sights on a much grander target, waging war on the Lamb himself. This warfare is the battle introduced in chapter 16 and verse 14 and described in chapter 19 and verse 19, the battle of Armageddon. In chapter 19, John writes, "...I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army." The beast will be allowed to, get, to have great success against the church. And as he turns his tricks on the world stage, the unbelieving nations individually and collectively will be drawn under his sway, joyfully taking his mark, enthusiastically joining up in his service, fiercely fighting for his cause. That's why we must remember the whole prophecy from Daniel 7, where the prophet says, I looked... And this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. It may appear as though the ten kings and the beasts they serve well, who have previously had success in waging war on the people of God cannot be stopped, but the Ancient of Days will have the last word, and the judgment will be on the side of the saints of God. The angel is definitive in describing their destruction. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who Who were with him are called and chosen and faithful. The Lamb will overcome. That's what this whole book is about. Don't miss this. In chapter 5 and verse 6, John saw one who came forward worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals Says a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he witnessed all of heaven give glory to the lamb because he was slain and by his blood he ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and made them a kingdom and priest to our God. In chapter 7 and verse 17, John saw the ones coming out of the great tribulation who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb and rejoiced in the eternal victory as they took up permanent residence in God's presence, writing that the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And in chapter 12 and verse 11, John saw that the brothers conquered the accuser, who is the dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And in chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, John saw a vision of those who had conquered the beast and its image, singing the song of the lamb. This book is about the Lamb. The Lamb in the midst of His churches. The Lamb holds the churches in His hand. The Lamb controls the story of human history because the Lamb was the agent of mankind's creation. The Lamb calls people to overcome by faith in His name because the Lamb has already overcome in the place of sinners. The Lamb is attacked, but the Lamb will be victorious. It's a done deal, a foregone conclusion, a certain reality. The Lamb will overcome. Marshal every whiskey wicked despot. Call up every tyrant king. Enlist every prideful prince. Gather all the armies of all the nations and unlock to them all the armories of earth. Place in their bloody hands the sword of Satan himself. The same sword that slaughtered the Hebrew boys in the land of Goshen. That slaughtered the sons of Rachel in the town of Bethlehem. That pierced the heart of Mary when she wept over the death of her only son. Let them wage war on God and the Lamb. For at their strongest they will be proved weak. Weak and worthless, the Lamb, the Lord God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus, Savior, Redeemer, King, will overcome. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. The angel told John. I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And now the angel tells John that those waters are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Remember that the prostitute is not a literal woman or a literal city, but is the symbol of the final expression of worldwide evil opposition to God and the people of God. This woman will be used by the beast to draw and entice and engage those who dwell on the earth, the unbelievers, in the worship of the beast and the dragon. Her appeal will be worldwide, which is why she is seated over peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Literally, no unbeliever will be untouched by her sway. Recall the vision of chapter 7 and verse 9 where after hearing the number of the sealed of the tribes of Israel, John saw an unnumbered multitude of the nations. Here, in chapter 17, we are reminded that no one is neutral, no nation, no people, no language, no tribe. Every person will be found in one of two kingdoms. Either by faith in the Lamb, we will be citizens of the kingdom of God, or in unbelief, We are citizens of the kingdom of this world, which John describes as Babylon the Great. Everyone, us included, need to be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. The only way for that to happen is by grace through faith. The angel tells John that the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, will hate the prostitute They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. That's a declaration. The description of that destruction is what chapter 18 is all about. So we only need to say at this point that the nature of evil is self-destructive. The worldwide system of evil will gain power from the beast but only for as long as that power is needed to accomplish the beast's purpose, and then it will turn in on itself. Schreiner reminds us that evil ultimately implodes. It is inerrantly self-destructive. The city of man will collapse under the weight of its own evil and hate. And then the angel tells us that this destruction will happen the woman will fall at the hands of the beast because God has put it into their hearts to carry out this purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Sometimes we get... We get confused about the way this world works. We don't see God embodied in front of us day in and day out. And so perhaps we begin to think, well, God is far from us. He's removed from us. He's a long way off from us. And perhaps we begin to think that this world turns on its own. is left to its own devices. As though God is simply allowing all these things to happen. And John reminds us here at the end of Revelation chapter 17 that actually God is the active agent. He is not only allowing, but he is causing things to happen. And one of the things that God will cause to happen at the end of days is he will cause the final stand of evil to rise so that he might be proved powerful and majestic over every force that dare rise against him. Do you remember the story of ancient Israel? God had time and again reminded his people of his commands, of the holiness that was demanded of them, of the expectation of how they should live in the midst of the nations of the earth. And time and time and time again, Israel rebelled. They did what seemed right in their own eyes. They wanted a king like the nations of the earth, not recognizing that they already had a king, God himself. And so God gave them over to themselves, and God raised up nations to bring them to an end, to bring destruction and judgment and wrath upon them. God raised up the Assyrians to bring an end to Israel, and He raised up ancient Babylon to bring an end to Judah. But then you remember that ancient Babylon was puffed up and prideful and said, we did this. This was our power, our might, our show of force. And what did God say? How dare you? How dare you ascribe power to yourself? How dare you think you did this in your own might. I will crush you so that you know it was me. And God raised up the Medes and the Persians to destroy Babylon so that Babylon knew God's power. For the whole story of human history since the fall, the kingdom of this world has opposed the kingdom of God. Babylon the Great has reared her head in every evil system of opposition to God. And at the end of days, she will have one final stand. And with every ounce of strength she has, she will still pale in comparison to God the Almighty. So take heart, have joy, be filled with assurance and peace because the lamb will overcome. Father, we thank you that we have these words of assurance that we can be certain that as we dwell in the kingdom of God by faith, we will not dwell in the kingdom of this world. We can have assurance that when nations rise against you and against your people, they will not have the last word for when that great battle takes place, they will be undone in one fell swoop we can take this as a word of peace and assurance because by faith we see clearly the beauty of Jesus and we are not enticed by the filth of this unbelieving world. So would you help us, God, to rest in the assurance that the Lamb has overcome And may we follow him wherever he goes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.